Good stuff. Well, if you've got a Bible, then turn with me to John chapter 3. If you haven't got a Bible, that's all right, because I'm going to read it anyway. But if you have got a Bible, turn there. Let me give you a bit of background to what we're about to look at. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He's one of his closest friends. And the words he writes here in this verse that we're looking at today, verse 16 of chapter 3, are among some of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible, and I think without doubt among some of the most important verses. So earlier on, we looked at some really nice dedications, didn't we? What a precious moment that is when you're seeing parents who love their kids and they want to dedicate their kids to the Lord and ask for his grace. It's a wonderful time, a family time for us as a church and as friends and family. And yet here in this verse, we see, I think, the ultimate dedication. The most amazing dedication that you've ever seen in your entire life from the Father to the Son to the world. And as we give ourselves to it today, it's my hope that for every individual in this room, that you would come to either know afresh or know for the first time God's passionate and personal and particular love for you individually. Because that's what we see in this verse. So let's read it together. John 3, 16. It's Jesus talking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so large. There are so many words in it that you speak to us from your mouth. And yet as we come to these words today, this verse, oh Lord, how much is packed into this verse? Lord, did you open our eyes today that we may be able to taste and see that you are good? Would you open our eyes today, whoever we may be, whatever the reason may be that we've arrived here this morning, would you open our eyes to behold your passionate and personal and particular love for us? And Lord, would our lives then be changed forever? Amen. My wife and I, we have three wonderful children. We have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And when they were little, we used to read them books. Now we've graduated to movies because it's a little easier. But when they were little, we used to read books. And one of our favorite books was this one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And I want to begin by taking you to a part in this story that I think relates to John 3.16. It's the part where Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy are entering into a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they start to talk for the first time about Aslan, this something that they've heard about. It says as follows. Tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling like the first signs of spring, like good news had come over them. Who is Aslan? asked Susan, 
Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen, all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone. If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. Oh, no. He'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. When wrong will be right, when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. You know, growing up for me, I used to think that the king is good. And I had no idea about whether he was safe or not. Growing up, I thought of God as this good guy, as this sort of genie in the lamp type thing that, you know, you'd pray to now and again, and he'd help you with your woes and your issues. And if you had asked me to draw him, I probably would have drawn like Santa Claus or something of that nature, because I had that idea about God. And God is indeed good. But if that's all we think about him, our understanding of God is profoundly deficient. See, Hebrews 12 verse 28 says, God is a consuming fire. That doesn't sound like Santa Claus to me. God is a consuming fire. And the the attachment that comes with that is because he is a consuming fire, we should worship him with reverence and awe. God is indeed good. But he's not safe. And really, to understand John 3.16, you have to understand that. Otherwise, it really doesn't sparkle. And it really doesn't make sense in the way that it's meant to. And the reason that God is not safe is because he is holy. And as we make our way in this message back to John 3.16 and to understanding it, we have to start there with understanding that God is holy. Now, different people think different things about holiness, right? I'm English. You can tell by my, my accent. In England... 
we think of different things about holy. We think of the holiness as like the Pope or something like that. Or maybe like a church building with stained glass windows. There's something allegedly holy about those moments. Um, or there's certain mannerisms that are holier than thou. So if you stand on your tippy toes and put your hands like this and go, oh, Amen, that's a holy moment. But of course it's not. But everybody thinks that it is. They, people think of those types of things as holy. But truly what holiness means, to be holy is just simply to be set apart. And that is exactly what God is. First and foremostly, God is set apart from us in his capabilities. Isaiah 40 says it this way. Check this out. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? I love that. The whole premise of that verse is, Who can do these things? I'll tell you who can do these things. God can do these things. That's the way it's written. So 70% of our world is covered in water. And God says, you know what? Yeah, I can measure that in the hollow of my hands. Human beings have tried and failed to measure the distance across the galaxies. And yet God says, yeah, I can measure that with the breadth of my hand. Human beings can't just lift up Uluru and the Pennines and the Alps and measure them on scales. But according to this writer, God can do that. It's, It's not hard for the Lord. It's really easy, in fact, for him. In Job 26, verse 14, we read, and these things are just the outer fringes of his work. I mean, consider your bodies for a moment. Consider what is actually in you. In a book called Springboards, the author says as follows. He says, perhaps the greatest proof of the creator's existence is when you gaze into the mirror. Contrary to common belief, your lungs are more than just bags to breathe smoke into Yeah, they are designed to filter oxygen out of the air you breathe. These incredible organs contain 300,000 million tiny blood vessels called capillaries. Your entire body supply washes through your lungs once every minute. In your lifetime, the marrow in your bones will create approximately half a ton of red blood cells. You have focusing muscles in your eyes that move an estimated 100,000 times each day. That same eye has within it a retina that covers less than a square inch and contains 137 million light-sensitive cells. A wide-eyed Charles Darwin once said, quote, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. True. Your brain contains within it 10,000 million neurons or microscopic nerve cells. Your stomach, which produces four pints of gastric juice each day, has 35 million glands lining it. Next time you eat a delicious meal, be thankful for the 8,000 taste buds that were put into your mouth. Imagine how boring that would be eating without them. The human body is an incredible thing. And the Bible says that God created them. Whether you believe that God created them through evolution or God created them in a moment, God created them and sustains them, the Bible teaches us, so that our lungs could keep taking in breath, so that our hearts keep going in this moment. And that's just up close and personal. Imagine then the stars. There are 100 billion stars in our galaxy, and there are over 100 billion galaxies. This is what Isaiah says. He says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. The Bible teaches us that those stars that we look at and we check them out and enjoy them, 
God created each and every one of them, and he calls them each by name, and he sustains them so that not even one of them is missing. God is completely holy, isn't he? He is completely set apart from us in his capabilities. But he's also set apart from us in his moral capabilities. He's set apart from us in his moral purity. And it's that which gives us such a great problem. See, A.W. Tozer, when he's talking about the holiness of God, A.W. Tozer is a theologian. He says, we cannot grasp the divine holiness by thinking of something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. So you cannot just imagine the nicest grandmother you've ever had and times it by a million and think, well, that must be like God, yes. No, you can't do that. God's holiness, he says, is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. No, God's holiness stands apart, unique, unapproachable, and incomprehensible. God is holy. He is completely set apart from us in his capabilities. He is completely set apart from us in his moral purity. He is completely separate from sin. And as a result, he completely separates himself from sin. And that's what gives us such a great problem. Indeed, I think, the ultimate problem. See, if we headed to the streets today, as Brenda did last week, and we started to ask people questions, I think if we asked them, you know, what do you think is man's ultimate problem? I think we get a whole range of different answers from different people. I think some people would say, what is man's ultimate problem? Well, for, him, for me here in Sydney, and it's the, well, it's the price of housing. That's man's ultimate problem right now for me in Sydney. Other people would say, I think man's ultimate problem, you know, I think that's more like diseases. So AIDS and cancer and heart disease, some things that are incurable, that's got to be man's greatest problem. Other people would say, no, I think terrorism. I think that's probably the, the number one issue in our world today or educational job issues or, or the economy. You would get a whole range of different answers depending on people's different viewpoints. And yet according to the Bible, man's ultimate problem as biblically defined is none of those things. Man's ultimate problem as biblically defined is our sinfulness in light of his holiness. See, Hebrews 9 verse 27 says this. I think it's one of the most sobering verses in the entire Bible. It says, man is destined to die once, and after that, he faces judgment. That's not a popular thing to say these days. But it's the truth. See, for some people, as they consider that moment, as they consider being judged, they're not too worried about it. And we get to learn that when we're really little. So we like we smile at all these babies being dedicated today, but give them a year and it'll be different. Because in a year's time, what they'll learn, nobody will teach them this, but when something happens in the family home, they will instantly know what to do. You say immediately, it was them. Because that's what we all do. And we never really grow out of that. We like to deflect anything that we could have possibly have done and explain that it is somebody else's problem. It is somebody else's fault. And if that's the attitude we bring, we never fear judgment because we never really think we're doing anything wrong. It's always somebody else's problem. For others, they admit that they do things wrong, 
But they think as they commit to that judgment moment, they're not too worried about it because they compare themselves to other people and they think, well, look, I'm not a pedophile. I've never murdered anybody. I've not done these different things. I can understand that those people would be separated from God, but I'm not too bad. And so they weigh themselves against others and come off favorable and think that, well, you know, that day probably isn't too fearful for me now. But under the premise that man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment, the important issue biblically is that God will not compare us with other people in that moment. He will compare us with his standard, his law. And that changes everything. See, in Exodus chapter 20, God gives Moses his law. And I want you for a moment to compare yourself to this law. I want you to consider this moment where you stand before the Lord and give an account. And I want you to compare yourself to this law. Now, very important, don't compare your spouse to this law. Okay, that can be fun, but don't do that. Don't compare your sibling to this law. I want you to consider for yourself your moment before God. Number one, then, the first commandment that he's given you upon birth, you shall, not, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus described it this way in Matthew. He says, we should love the Lord with our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. Not just sometimes and some of, but all of the time, we should commit ourselves to loving God with all our might. And the moment we don't do that, we have found ourselves having other gods before him, and we've broken that law. Number two, you shall not make for yourself any idol. People don't tend to worry about this because they think, I've never made a golden calf in my life. But an idol isn't a golden calf. An idol is something, anything, that we give more attention to and devotion to than God. That could be a whole range of things. That could be a sport. It could be soccer. It can be our homes. It can be our spouses. It can be food. It can be sleep. It can be music. It can even actually be our children. But the Lord makes it clear that the moment we give more attention to something and more devotion to something in a passioned way than him, well, that's an idol. We've broken in that commandment. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Matthew twelve thirty six says, But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Number four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Before I was 16, I went to church every week. And I think I probably worshipped for a matter of minutes every week. And that was my entire sum of what it meant to worship the Lord on that day, let alone give a day to the Lord to honor him and bring him praise. Number five, honor your father and mother. Not just sometimes, but always and consistently, whenever you encounter them throughout your whole life, honor them. Number six, you shall not murder. Now, this is the one that I used to get so excited about because you think, finally, there's one I've not broken. You know, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm in. But then you read 1 John 3.15, and he says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life in him. And so the stakes are up that as soon as you hate somebody, it's like you've murdered them in your heart. And suddenly then, unless you've never hated someone, you realize you've broken that commandment as well. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Sexual intimacy with anybody we're not married to is breaking that commandment. 
And Jesus said, if anyone even looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The moment we look at an individual and we let our mind go in a lustful sense, we've broken that commandment. Number eight, you shall not steal. If we have ever taken anything, no matter how small, then we've broken that commandment. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony. There's no indication in that text that there are black lies and white lies. They're just lies. The moment we give false testimony, broken that one. And number 10, you shall not covet. The moment we crave something in an overboard way that we don't own, that doesn't belong to us, we've then broken that commandment. Now, on the premise then that we've stopped comparing ourselves with other people, how did you go? The reality is, who amongst us has never done any of these things? We all fallen short somewhere. And that is exactly what Paul tells us in Romans 3.23. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, every single one of us in this room has screwed up somewhere, whether we like it or not. And if you're like me, you screwed up most of those places. If not, nearly all those places. My friends, we do things wrong. We, we break the law, and it is that, in light of God's holiness, that gives us the ultimate problem. And the ultimate problem is twofold. See, because of our sin, we are cut off from God. Do you realize that? Because of your sin, you are cut off from him. Isaiah simply says it this way in chapter 59. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save or is he a dull that it cannot hear? But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sin has resulted in a great chasm between us in our sinfulness and God in his holiness. There is a great chasm between us. And that's a horrible thing to consider that God cannot relate to us in our sin and will not relate to us in our sin. But I think what is more fearful is that because of our sin, we are on a collision course with his wrath. Man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. According to this, according to the Bible, in that moment, we're on a collision course with his wrath, with his righteous anger. D.A. Carson talks about it this way. He says, In the Bible, God's wrath is a function of his holiness. His wrath or anger is not the explosion of a bad temper or a chronic inability to restrain his irritability, but rather a just and principled opposition to sin. God's holiness is so amazingly glorious that it demands that he be wrathful with those of his creatures who defy him, sly his majesty, turn their noses at, their, at his words and works and insist on their own independence, even though every breath they breathe, not to mention their very existence, depends on his providential care. If God were to gaze at sin and rebellion, shrug his shoulders and mutter, well, I'm not too bothered. I can forgive them. I don't really care what they do. Surely there would be something morally deficient about him. Should God care nothing of Hitler's outrages? Should God care nothing of my rebellion or your rebellion? If he acted this way, he would ultimately discount his own significance 
sully his own glory, to besmirch his own honor, and soil his own integrity. My friends, God is holy. And to think then that he's just going to be like, look, whatever, no big deal about your sin, is, is ridiculous. To actually see that as a God, what type of God would that be? And there is not a more terrifying event to come in future history, I believe, than the coming day of God's wrath. The writer to the Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in Revelation, John, looking forward to that day and seeing that day dimly, says, for the day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The coming day of God's wrath is real. And I'm aware, if you don't know me, I'm not winning any popularity votes in this moment. But I'm not trying to. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. I'm just trying to tell you what this says. You may be standing at the top of a cliff and jump off and just, well, I refuse to believe that gravity exists. You can do that if you want. It does. You will die. This day of judgment is like that too. You can refuse to believe it. But you will stand before him and give account. And the Bible is clear that when we die, it doesn't then just end in nothing. It doesn't move on to purgatory where we try and do something and something happens that we might be able to get into the higher plane. It doesn't you know, carry on in reincarnation. We don't come back as an amoeba or anything like that. The Bible is clear. We die. We give an account before him. And if we're found holy, then heaven is our home. And you're in. But if you're found to have broken his law, which we all have, then you will be an object of his wrath. And you will be removed from him for all eternity into the context of hell, which our media suggests is great. But the Bible suggests that's not great. Because you will be alone with your thoughts under his wrath. For all eternity. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. My friends, God is good. But he's not safe. We can't domesticate him. And just try and have him fit in with our little ideal of what we want God to be. He's not safe. But he is good. And it's that backdrop that I think makes John 3.16 so amazing. Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not be an object of his wrath for all eternity, but instead would have eternal life. You see, my friends, God is indeed a holy and righteous judge. And we have indeed fallen well short of the glory of the Lord. And yet, incredibly, this story doesn't end there. And it could have. He could have just left us right then and gone, look, I've told you what you need to do. You've rejected it, so there we go. One chance and you're out. But he didn't. In his holiness and in his majesty, seeing that we are in his sin, in our sin, In his grace, he made a way for us to be reconciled to him. 
In his grace and splendor, he made a way for you and I to cross the great chasm and to be reconciled to the God that made us so we can be with him for all eternity. In his grace, he made a way for us, you and I, to be completely forgiven of our sin. That's incredible. He made a way for us to look at our lives and see that we've broken every law and have that washed clean and say, now when I see you, I'm going to see you as holy. And he made that way in incredible grace by sending his son to die in our place as our substitute on the cross. My friends, our sin must be punished. To not punish our sin would ultimately discount God's own significance, sully his own glory, besmirch his own honor, and soil his own integrity. And yet in profound grace, God made a way for us to not have to face that punishment. How? By punishing his own son instead. By sending his own son to die the death that you deserved and take on the punishment that you deserved so that you can have life, so that you can have eternal life. You know, what amazing grace that is, don't you think? We sing about amazing grace at different times, and sometimes I don't think we can feel just how incredible this is. But when you see God at the right time sending forth his Son for sinners like you and me, that's to be overwhelmed by his grace. Because grace is amazing. We were running headlong to hell, uninterested in him, and he in grace ran after us. What amazing grace. And yet, I think it's more than that. What abounding love. He made a way for you by sending his son. We should never grow familiar with that. I'm a father. I love my kids. What would it feel like to send them. Josh Harris says it this way. He says, It is impossible to comprehend all that this cost would have meant for the Father to give up his Son to come on the mission of this salvation. God the Father and God the Son had enjoyed uninterrupted joy and fellowship and communion for all of eternity past. And yet when Jesus came to earth and became a human being, he left his Father's side. He left the glory and perfection of heaven to enter into the poverty and pain of this world. And the Father, out of love for us, gave him up. You know, I have one son. I have three children, two daughters, and one son. I love them all very much. But through my son's life, I think I've discovered on numerous occasions how much I love him. Because when he was born, he was born with an internal cleft palate. He had two holes in his heart. He had only one kidney that was working properly. And we then went through a series of operations and challenges with him. We gave him more medications than you've you've ever given anybody in your life. And I was there as the dad on different occasions, being the one that would take him in. So he had his first operation when he was three, another one when he was five. Then at seven, they did heart surgery on him. 
And each and every time I, I walked through that as a father with my son, I was wonderfully aware of how much I love him. See, sometimes he was fearful. Sometimes he was scared of what was taking place. And you were just aware, I, I would do anything to help him in this moment. Other times he was actually toughing it out. And he was actually seeking to trust in God that he's going to help me. And he would say to me, even when he was five, you know, I think God's going to help me. And that would make me feel just as emotional because you'd be so proud of him. You know, the thing though is this. My love for my son is a mere shadow of God's love for his son. And yet in profound grace, he sent his son on a rescue mission for you. And that rescue mission wasn't just a series of operations. Now that that rescue mission would result in his son dying in a bloody mess on a cross at Calvary. And the father for the first time in eternity turning his face away from his son and pouring the righteous wrath that I deserved out on him. My friends, that is abounding love. And if you want to know how God feels about you, if you want to know how intense his love is for you as an individual, if you want to know how passionate and particular and personal his love for you is, I suggest the way we do that is by understanding that the intensity of God's love for you really is shown in the value of his gift for you. You want to know how he feels about you? Look at what he gave up for you. You want to know how passionate and particular his love is for you? Then behold the father who loves his son in a way that we can barely even imagine. Sending his son on a rescue mission for you. That truly is abounding love. And my friends, because of that abounding love of God's towards us, here's what we now have. What we now have, I think, in closing is the ultimate opportunity. You see, my friends, through belief in Jesus Christ, eternal life can be yours. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that. There's a that. There's an application. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not sit under his wrath, but instead should have eternal life. My friends, through belief in Jesus Christ, eternal life can be yours. And so here then is my question to you as we close. Have you believed in him? Have you? Have you made Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life? My friends, if you're here today and you're a Christian and you have done that, I trust that John 3.16 will be ringing in your ears throughout this whole week as we approach Good Friday, as we approach Resurrection Sunday. I, I trust that you will have this verse placarded before your eyes and you would detach yourself from it, but instead you would see through this verse his passionate and his personal and his particular love for you. Because such is his love that he sent his son for you. If though you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
you haven't actually, before this moment, believed. And I simply want to urge you and encourage you, believe in him today. And this eternal life then will be yours. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. You know, maybe you're thinking, you know, I I just couldn't know. Dave, if you knew my life, if you knew all the things I'd done in my life, if you realized how much I'd rejected God, you'd realize it's too late. Or maybe you think because of who you are or what you've done that you're somehow excluded from this Bible. Oh, friends, I want to encourage you through a word. The word is this, whoever believes. That's wide. That's as wide as the oceans. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. If you in this moment say, Lord, I believe in you. I want to take you as the king of my life. I want to take you as my savior. Then you are, as biblically defined in that moment, no longer an object of his wrath. But you're a child of the king. And eternal life will be yours. Let's all close our eyes as we bring this to an end. I don't want to embarrass anybody here and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or stand or anything of that nature. But if you're thinking, you know, in this moment, I, I want to respond to this. I, I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to become a Christian. Then you don't have to pray this out loud, but just in your own minds because God knows you and he's watching you and listening to you. Just repeat this prayer after me. Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? Lord, would you forgive me for all the times that I've run away from you? And Lord, in this moment, I put my faith in you as Lord and Savior of my life. And in this moment, I thank you for dying for me. And in this moment, I believe and I give my life to you. Lord, I do thank you that it is incredibly that simple. When we see you in your word, when we see you in the gospel... We don't have to then earn our way into your good books because Jesus Christ has earned it for us. Lord, I thank you that the root of Christianity is nothing about what we do for you. It is all about what you've done for us. For we were running headlong to hell and yet you came running after us and you loved us enough to part with your only son Lord, would we all then know your passionate and personal and particular love for us? And would we be overwhelmed by that? And would we delight in that? And would we give you all the glory you deserve? In Jesus' precious name, amen.